0: Welcome to the GC On Demand podcast. Uh, my name is Eric Wright. I am at Disco Posse on Twitter. I am uh, Disco Posse here in the Green Circle community. Of course, you can go to greencircle.vmturbo.com and we can chat through there. Uh, and today we're going to talk a little bit around the stack, uh, the OpenStack, that is. I've got a special guest uh, with us here. In fact, a Toronto, uh, Toronto local, which is a rare occasion for me to find and ironically enough, we're, we're recording this through GoToMeeting. We're probably not even far from each other. But with that, I would like to welcome Steve Gordon. And uh, Steve, if you want to introduce yourself to everyone and you know, let us know how do we find you online and such. And then we're going to kind of get into some OpenStack Mitaka and uh, announcement stuff.
1: Sure. Thanks, Eric. Uh, I'm Stephen Gordon. I am a Principal Product Manager at Red Hat uh, working on OpenStack Compute. Uh, so, both the compute project and the supporting uh, virtualization, container, um, bare metal um, areas of technology in, in the operating system itself. Um, and people can find me online uh, at Access Gordon
0: on Twitter, it's probably the easiest way. Um, and yeah, just happy to be here. So, it's Obviously, we've got a lot of excitement, you know, going into the summit. This has you know, been an adventurous, you know, release as it seems to grow and grow. You know, we'll talk about a couple of things, but yeah, you did a great presentation recently uh, where you talked to some, highlight some of the you know kind of new release features in in Mitaka. Maybe if you want to talk about some of the stuff that you're keen on that that's in this new release and and stuff that maybe people can look forward to, especially around obviously the the Nova you know compute side of the world. Sure.
1: Um, so in my compute, I guess, uh, subject matter area, um, the exciting things for me is, uh, so first of all, uh, from a scalability perspective, uh, there's been ongoing work since Keeler, really, on uh, the version 2 implementation of what are called cells uh, in OpenStack. Uh, so this is the concept of breaking up your compute installation in a way that you can have separate uh, message queues and databases in particular. Um, for different sets of compute nodes, and this is, this is where, in a production setup, typically the database and the message queue, which are kind of, in many ways, the more traditional uh, and less distributed services, uh, are really the first bottleneck people hit with uh, scale. Uh, so being able to do uh, multiple cells uh, has always been really there for a very long time, but there are a lot of issues with the V1 implementation that mean a lot of people can't use it. Uh, so progress towards Cells version 2 and making it more readily available um, is a big deal. So in Mataka, um, we only take another step in that direction. So the split out of the Cell API database and the main compute database um, has occurred. Uh, so in effect, each, each deployment becomes a cell of one. Uh, And that will roll into the mutant work where this will likely continue to be a priority um, with a view to making multiple cell setups possible with this setup and also providing a migration uh, for those users who are using the Cells v1 implementation. Um, So people like CERN, for example, are pretty well-known community users that have large uh, Compute Cells v1 uh, deployments uh, that will be looking to migrate to that future in the future. Another thing from operational perspective, uh, there's been a big focus around cleaning up and improving the live migration code in OpenStack, uh, particularly with the libvirt slash KVM hypervisor driver. Um, so Libvirt and KVM have a lot of features for uh, throttling uh, migrations, doing various optimizations to a migration to give it the best chance of completing successfully. Um, and OpenStack up until this point hasn't really been taking advantage of a lot of those. Um, So there are a lot of features um, in terms of the Bataka release where there's things like the ability to pause the live migration, uh, abort it, get a progress report, uh, and also for it to automatically detect block-first shared storage instead of the admin having to feed that information in. So that's just a little bit of a cleaner uh, interface from a command line perspective as well. Um, So that's a big deal uh, for operators who rely on that feature, particularly uh, moving workloads around um, in response to the need to do maintenance and that kind of thing on specific compute nodes. Now,
0: um, I'm going to pick on that one for it's 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 funny that in, that one often gets called out as a you know a lot of people ask for it and then a lot of people think we don't need it. <laughs> yeah. It has, have what's your experience been out in the industry? You know, with live migration, you find, you know, a lot of the sort of traditional. You know, it should be you know torn and, and relaunched uh, versus migrated uh, crowd. You know, have when I get out there and I speak to customers that are running OpenStack, like live migration was a was a big thing. A lot of people are, are loving the fact that it's available to them now.
1: Yeah, so I think there's this split. Well, in in terms of the original, uh, I guess, objectives of OpenStack, there's definitely. Um, that tilt towards you know cloud ready applications, um, but the reality for a lot of customers is that they don't have a, have necessarily completely cloud ready applications today. Um, certainly for greenfield stuff that they're building today, they try and um, build them with that in mind. Um, but they often also have you know large databases or that kind of thing, uh, which they can't easily migrate um, at this point, but they still want to have one infrastructure. Um, And interestingly, that that database example is actually where some of these features come in quite handy. So when I talk about, uh, I mentioned giving the live migration the best chance of finishing, uh, one of the things that heavily impacts, obviously, migration time and whether we can finalize the migration is how quickly is the uh, memory of that virtual machine changing um, because we have to be able to transfer that memory state to another machine while it's still changing on, a, on the source machine and then copy the, gradually you're hoping that the deltas in terms of changes in the memory get smaller. Um, and that's where you know, these large traditional virtual machines, which people may be running on OpenStack as kind of a transition phase, um, that's where some of these live migration features really help them out. Um, so certainly the feedback we get from customers is that it is very useful. Um, and largely that is the private cloud customers who are uh, managing traditional applications that they are working with while also building net new uh, applications as well, um, whether directly on OpenShift or using even a higher level platform uh, like something like OpenShift.
0: Yeah, I like the the targeting that traditional, you know, legacy or, or we're not, it's always tough. Everything's going to be legacy. I mean, we're going to have legacy containers soon and legacy PaaS environments. But let's say the monolithic, you know, single instance database. There's there's a ton of them out there, and and there's probably not a real reason to re-architect some of those applications, right? It doesn't. There's not always a need to make everything cloud ready if we can just you know enable that feature set that you know, lets them do stuff like that. If it's a low-throughput database, fairly easy to migrate around. So, you know, why not let that live and, and make it part of making OpenStack kind of a more robust, you know, quote, enterprisey, uh, you know, type of offering, right?
1: Right. And in terms of the, the database, it's kind of, there's no reason that that uh, single monolithic database or the traditional database with all that information in it Um, can't be fronted by a cloud-ready application that actually does respond to resource destruction and so on in a a cloud-like fashion. Um, But the database, as long as it works, don't don't fix it. kind of thing is the attitude for a lot of folks. Um, That's kind of going to be the last piece of the application that they uh, change in the direction of cloud readiness.
0: And there's you know, there's been a lot of really cool stuff that's been rising up in the overt community, and so there's some neat things happening there. But I, I don't want I kind of already took us off. You know, we were you were running through some good feature set. So I'll let you get back to you know what else is is kind of cool and, and neat uh, with the the latest release.
1: Um, so the one other thing I wanted to mention from a compute perspective was real time KVM support, uh, which is kind of again. <laughs> very interesting in terms of when we're talking about uh, cloud applications versus traditional applications. Um, It's a different use case for cloud, I guess, than a lot of people would be used to. Um, So the idea behind real-time is to provide some guarantees, um, mainly using kernel features uh, as to the maximum uh, latency that a process can expect. and primarily that's targeted for, we see it, certainly network function virtualization use cases, uh, but also high frequency trading. Um, and that's a feature, traditionally has been a feature of the kernel. So there's a set of patches called the real-time patches of the preempt RTE patches for the Linux kernel um, that provide you with real-time capabilities and those SLA guarantees, or at least a SLA band or latency band on the host's operating system on physical hardware. So what that means is that the latency um, is not necessarily as low as it could be. So if you're just running the regular Linux kernel, um, your lowest latency is going to actually be lower than the real-time kernel. But the offset of that is that the the, uh, spikes are also going to be much higher. Uh, So the real-time kernel is trying to even that out and give you something in the middle, um, and more importantly, offer consistency. Um, What we do do with real-time KVM is then move to the Where we can try and actually um, expose that to a guest as well. Uh, So there needs to be a real time enabled version of the KVM kernel module. Um, And then also the guest operating system runs real time as well. Uh, From an OpenStack perspective, uh, the changes to support this are in some ways relatively simple. So there's an additional flag that gets uh, passed through um, to the QMU process based on image properties and so on. Uh, But there is also A lot more required there in future to get optimal performance out of that in terms of uh, configuring um, all of the host setup out of the box so that you get that optimal performance as well. Um, But it's it's very interesting from a tuning perspective just to see how that might be packaged up and offered as a cloud service.
0: Yeah, it's neat. And, And just the idea that the host itself can expose that feature set, you know, we started off back in the day with like just the NX flags and things being able to present up to the virtualization layer and pass that through to the guest. I was there Intel had their sort of cloud day uh, thing recently. And, and and there was a big, a lot of announcements around it. And one of the things that they were kind of focusing on was that idea of, you know, presenting uh, latency capabilities and queuing down to like L3 and being able to provide priorities and stuff. And that's like you said, it's, HFT and NFV this is stuff that just doesn't like latency (laughs) and you know we have to be ready for that and especially at service provider you know level that's going to be very very important to to see that in is it is it something you're seeing folks you know a a kind of a big company in the community that's driving that or is it a, a like where's the impetus coming to to make that a strong feature. Um, So, for the folks uh, at Red Hat
1: who developed it, it is primarily coming from uh, network function virtualization, so the telecommunication sector. Um, But I also saw a very good presentation at KVM Forum last year in Seattle um, from an engineer at Siemens uh, who's been working quite a bit on this as well. They, I believe, are more typically using it in actual physical hardware. Uh, But similarly, they have these requirements for low jitter or low low latency um, for their applications. It's a real, it's a collaboration, both in terms of the kernel work and also the KVM work as well. Um, and you know, this is a case where these enablers at the operating system level, and even as you mentioned at the chipset level, in some cases, uh, enable us to do some really cool things uh, from an open stack perspective in terms of exposing flavors for different performance profiles.
0: Yeah, it's it gives us that opportunity. You know, like I said, just it create sort of a higher order of of customer that we have that we can say, hey, look, you know, we we've got this feature set available. And and like you said, it's great collaboration among the community and I love that, you know, Siemens and other, you know, great contributors are really driving a lot on in this and, and many other areas. yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that you know talking sales, I'm gonna go back for a second. How has the cell utilization been? You talked about CERN being a big, you know, v1 implementer, and and that's why there's a lot of weight around migrating from v1 to v2, which in itself challenging. Uh, but you know, have you seen cell implementations that have 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 hit big, or more people kind of saying, "Well, I'm not sure how it's going to work for me," uh, and I'll. It's anecdotal, of course. <laughs> We're not going to say only you know 20% of people are using cells, but. What's your view been uh, from folks you've talked to, Stephen?
1: Um, so I think the main thing is, so obviously, there's, there are large installations using Cells v1. I mentioned CERN. I believe Rackspace is still another one. Um, and those folks have used Cells for a fair while at this point, um, but they've also encountered many issues with the v1 implementation. So they have a lot of um, experience doing the things they need to do or working around the features that are missing when you use Cells v1. I think a lot of folks have demand uh, for the things Cells provides you, in particular, as I mentioned, that's being able to um, scale the database and uh, message queue requirements and the amount of traffic between those and the Nova services uh, without necessarily having to split things up into separate regions. Um, the main the main difference, from in terms of what you're exposing to the user, there obviously being that a region exposes a different compute endpoint, uh, which the User has to actually specify if they want to spawn instances in that region, whereas cells is more of an operator construct and is quite transparent to the end users.
0: Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely like the, the the conceptually it's going to be much cleaner for implementation if you can if you can get there. But yeah, at scale. It's I mean a lot of stuff right. has been a, a scale challenge in general, especially at the you know message queuing. Celometer got held back a lot because of performance challenges around. You know, too much data going into the queue. It's and then it it became a real problem. I mean, well, that's just one example. Literally, you know, every every project I think has kind of hit the wall with some of the scalability, as from what I've seen, anyways.
1: Yeah, it, there's a few different things there. I mean, one of the issues I think was that in early on, uh, out of the box, a lot of the Rabbit configurations uh, were not really that optimal. Um, so the community as a whole has gotten a lot better at tuning Rabbit and understanding where the gaps are um, in terms of what you can and can't do with it. Um, and there also, I think uh, there have been at, at some level, you know, we've tracked Rabbit issues down even to specific uh, issues in the kernel networking stack. I, I can think of at least one bug in that area that we eventually nailed down and made a big difference. So it's certainly gotten a lot better in terms of what you can do with it, but there is still going to be a theoretical maximum with what you can do uh, with a single database or queue. Um, obviously, there is some clustering capability in both of those things, but that as well has its limits. Um, but you know, there's a lot, definitely, for that reason, a lot of demand for the Cells version 2 stuff. I think the thing is that you know, most folks in the operator community, if they aren't already using Cells, uh, have heard the news that there's a, a v2 implementation coming and are willing to hold off to try and go straight to that, if at all possible. Um, certainly, that's part of the, the way it's designed. Is certainly that yes, there is a path from v One to v Two, uh, but also that all Nova installations should become at least a Cell of One effectively.
0: Yeah, and when you're making a packaged vendor product, the the worst thing you can do is say there's a really cool new feature coming, because it effectively halts the sales cycle. But you know, with OpenStack, it's not as though you know, as a community, we're selling it. So it's good that you know, maybe people will hold on. And then embrace it fully, and, and hopefully, you know, really drive up some of the utilization with with feature sets like that. Yeah,
1: well, I think the thing in this case is that there are visible trade offs to using the Cells v1 implementation. So there are certain Nova features that actually don't work with it, um, and that's that's the reason that people are hesitant to tr- to do it if they can help it, kind of thing, um, and, unless they're willing to work around those.
0: So the other thing I want to talk about is you know. In general, you know, you you're heavily involved uh, with with the development side and, and coordinating things, and and you know you're heavily involved in the community, and so it, how how is your sense around the evolution of the OpenStack development community and the operator community over the last you know few releases as we've seen it, you know I don't want to say mature you know but evolve. <laughs>
1: Yeah, evolve is definitely the right word. Um, there's definitely not a lot of, I guess, big bang moments in terms of the community and the even the software for that matter evolving. It's a very iterative process. Um, certainly there's been some changes to the project governance, of course, that make things much more inclusive. Um, with new projects um, that we're starting to see filter through and people try and um, grasp that. I think we are starting to see also um, Some stronger themes of cross project uh, collaboration uh, in terms of consistency and having consistent views uh, on certain things like logging, for example, and trying to apply those. Uh, And kind of, I guess, the third prong of uh, discussion that's been exciting over the last year or two is there's been deeper and deeper operator involvement uh, in the community, both in terms of the Ops meetups and things like that themselves and the Ops meet, meet cycles, but also operators uh, getting directly involved in design discussions uh, with the development community as well.
0: And, and because of the size of the community increasing, I mean, that was the one thing that was impressed when I looked over your presentation and, you know, we see the numbers in Stacklytics, right? Just the sheer numbers are there to show that this is truly a growing community at a really big scale that's that's my sense but anyways and just the the chatter is there's much more people that are understanding what the value is that OpenStack's bringing and and they want to either you know consume it or you know, even more so a lot are looking to contribute as well right
1: yeah we're certainly still seeing a, a continued increase uh in in the number of contributors uh the number of projects they're actually contributing to uh, so it's not necessarily that all of these people are going to one or two of the original projects or anything like that. There's people identifying new and different needs um, within the mission of OpenStack to become this kind of ubiquitous open source cloud platform. Uh, there are new and different things that people are seeing as needed uh, within that framework uh, and they're going out there and building them. Um, and you know, There's obviously uh, different levels of uh, Completeness and stability across that across that cross section of projects, um, but it's a, a growing toolkit, I guess, for building uh, clouds and obviously for ourselves for building a distribution or a platform uh, on top of which uh, people can build their own uh, or roll out their own clouds.
0: And and that kind of brings up the the ever fun challenge around the the governance approach and the big tent approach to it. You know, we've seen changes throughout recent releases and. It itself is an evolving model. Like, do you see? What are the good things you see about how that's going? And, and what are some of the challenges, especially as someone who's you know, deeply involved in, in in one of the projects?
1: Sure. Um, so I guess the, the the set of baseline there was this original process where things were either core projects or they are incubating or they are just out there. Um, so effectively, there was a bar set by the technical committee at the time, which was to determine whether a project should be should be incubated uh, for, for inclusion in the core release um, and then when it should graduate um, and at some point there was also a, a another category which was integrated. So you would go from uh, incubating to integrated to core in terms of a project and the, the problem that many saw with that is that um, first of all if you weren't uh, core or at least integrated a lot of the time uh, people didn't see the project as a, as a real thing as right. existing. Really. Uh, there's a sort of officialdom that was attached to that in the perception of users, which was never really the original intent.
0: You um, had to be like instead, in through two developments, full development cycles before it could be moved from incubation and, and such, right?
1: Right, right. And there's some other criteria as well, but uh, it certainly was a, a time-consuming process. And there's, as I said, some level of officialdom associated to it, which wasn't really the original intent, uh, as, it, as it were. Um, and then, gradually, uh, the other thing that came up was that there was this concept of, well, we've, in- we've in- incubated or graduated uh, a project that does X, and there's this other project out there that does X, possibly equally as well or if not better, um, which is no more or less a part of OpenStack, but we, don't, or we didn't, under the original framework, really uh, seem open to incubating projects that compete with each other um, based on, be- on their merits. Um, So out of all of this came this concept of the big tent uh, of making OpenStack more inclusive um, in terms of if you were doing things uh, the OpenStack way, building something that's somewhat related to the mission statement or somehow contributed to the mission statement, uh, then you are are OpenStack effectively um, and therefore you are part of OpenStack. So the big tent and inclusion in it governs, I guess, more or denotes more who is OpenStack um, and what is OpenStack. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, you know, give any... Uh, just being in the big tent doesn't give any guidance to how stable a project is um, or how long it's been around, what its relative uh, velocity is. Uh, we have this concept, though, for navigating this this entire uh, tent of projects, of, of tagging them. So there are tags defined, and more being added as well each cycle to help operators and users navigate this list of projects and see exactly you know, what a given project's maturity is, uh, whether it follows certain policies in terms of stable branches and things like that. Um, so we have this now much more inclusive governance model. Uh, I think the challenge is that that is something that users and operators, uh, even you know, press reporting on it for that matter, are still trying to wrap their heads around. Uh, so there's been a bit of a lag in terms of that.
0: And you can see some of that stuff through the, the project navigator, which I've had a lot of people uh, say they've, they've enjoyed so that. It's simpler to go in, pick the core, you know, whatever there's the, the six core and then the other or additional projects, figure what the, what the, what the naming is. And you can kind of drill down and it shows different documentation, build docs, you know, maturity. But I, mean, and with that one though, it, the Project Navigator specifically relies on on ref stack feedback, right? Is that that's my understanding of, of what drives that those statistics around adoption levels and and such?
1: Um, yeah, there's a combination of things. So when you go to one of those, and I think uh, under the maturity uh, category, for example, there's kind of a mix. There are some of those things that tags. Um, some of which are TC tags, so the technical committee denotes them. Some of them are things that the project asserts. Um, so, for example, the project asserts that it follows the stable branch policy or something like that. Um, and then some of them, as you mentioned, are metrics, which I can't recall if they're based off RefStack or the user survey. Um, but those are things like uh, yeah. which, how many clouds have this thing deployed.
0: Yeah, and you look at some of them, and it and it's there's understandably low uh, utilization of certain features just because they're fairly fresh, or maybe you know it's a very s- slim target audience for it. Uh, obviously, the the top top one, you know, you're on it, you're among it. <laughs> Nova clearly the the leader amongst things, uh, you know, because it's it's been an, an early project and and obviously a core component. But yeah, some of the stuff like you know DNS is a service. Surprisingly, higher than I thought it would be. You know, in in some of the that that feedback. But yeah, there's stuff super early, uh, and you know it, it'll it'll come in time. You know, people are just looking. You see the name Barbican, you think like, great, that sounds cool. What the heck is it? And people don't know what what key management means for them, and so that in itself is tough for new technologists. I find. You know, how, when you speak to folks that want to say, "All right, you know, I want to look at OpenStack. I want to see about its viability for my company," how do you, how do you tell them what it really is, and and what's the right way to kind of point people to say, "Here's a good place to go. Start here, and and then let's talk more."
1: Yeah. So th- there is actually a tag, but um, I believe this is a technical committee tag as well, uh, called the commute, Compute Starter Kit, uh, which. Know, effectively in layman's terms, is what do I need to start a VM? Um, so things like Keystone and Nova and Glance are in there. Um, I don't believe Cinder is, so they don't, they don't make the assumption that you necessarily need a block store. Uh, but just this is how you get a VM up and running. Uh, and I think that's a good position to be is to have those core infrastructure services. Uh, so particularly, I think of I think of network, compute, and storage uh, in the OpenStack ecosystem, I guess, as being the base level infrastructure building blocks. Um, So most, if not all, uh, OpenStack Clouds need those things. Um, And then we kind of have, as we go up from there, we have more of a kind of pick and mix, where you have almost infrastructure as a service plus, uh, whether things like database as a service, DNS as a service, um, that are things that not everyone is going to need, but depending on your installation, they might be appealing. And I I think Designate is a good example of something where there seems to be a lot of demand for that functionality um, in the OpenStack community. So that's why you see people picking it up, even even when maybe it's still, you you could argue, an emerging project. Um, Barbican is another good example, though, because it's not clear how many people are necessarily going out there and, and thinking. They need that key management that's provided by Barbican, but it's an interesting project in that it provides a functionality that a lot of the projects actually need themselves. Um, so there is a need for key management um, in Magnum and even in Nova for that matter um, that they can actually now share via Barbican or certainly in the future share um, a shared service to do that versus trying to do their own thing.
0: Yeah, and that's that's what's neat to see is that there's some stuff that has an, an sort of an end user consumer uh, you know attractiveness, and then there's internal operation stuff, and you know NFV introduced a bunch of requirements that required other things to scale and grow and be introduced. It's uh, another one I like as well, and and I. I know that you worked on this was around the actual manuals and you did a book sprint. Uh, I forget which, which release that, that that actually was associated with uh, around some of the OpenStack manuals and maybe tell us about that. Is that a, something that's continuously happening? And I, I'd, you know, I'd be curious to see how do those things get updated and are you sort of still heavily involved in that?
1: So, that's an interesting question actually, and that is a good lead from the uh, previous topic about the Big Tent. Because uh, one of the things that the Big Tent, in adding all these projects, does put pressure on is the cross project fu- uh, functions. Uh, so, things like the infrastructure team, the quality assurance team, and of course the documentation team. Um, so, one of the interesting discussions at the Newton Design Summit is going to be around the future of the installation guide for OpenStack, or at least the one that appears on docs.openstack.org because there's kind of this uh, increase in all of these projects that need documenting, but how does that one documentation team scale to that, or better yet enable the project team to contribute that installation documentation somehow, uh, and whether that should be managed closer to the project or closer to the docs um, repositories. Uh, With with regards to the sprint-created books, uh, so the there are a couple, uh, in particular, the Operator's Guide, uh, which was I written, I want to say, around the Grizzly time frame originally, uh, just a couple of years ago now, and also the Architecture Design Guide, uh, which I participated in, um, and I think that was around the Havana release. Um, so there are actually updates to the Architecture Design Guide being done at the moment. So that's all being done as kind of a virtual team effort over the last uh, six months or so, I'd say, uh, and it is ongoing. Uh, there's actually talk of doing a reboot, not a, a reboot is the wrong word, but an update of the operator's guide as well, uh, so there's going to be a session on the operator's track at the Mutant Summit uh, on the topic of bringing that up to date, too.
0: Nice. Yeah, and that's, and I was really, really happy, like, as for folks that already haven't seen it, you recommend that they go to docs.openstack.org, you can find all the guides there, uh, and, and uh, the architecture design guide, I find particularly helpful for folks because you, you're, you and the team really laid down good scenario based implementations, you know, kind of like we talked about before with like, you know, what are the basic services you need? And that's what it was like, here's the style of, of service of cloud that you're looking to attract it's going to be very you know storage focused very network focused and it you gave good ways of laying out the different projects and requirements so it was it was very very well done and and I've I've turned as many people on to that as as I could and and feedback's always been very very positive awesome so yeah, we're, uh, we're coming up to time and hopefully we'll get a chance to, to catch up at the event itself and, and I know you must have a lot of work going into it uh, so for folks that want to connect with you maybe at the summit uh, have you got any sessions that you're delivering and, and where good spots so they can potentially find out more about, about Red Hat's work and, and some of the stuff that you're doing Stephen?
1: Sure. So I don't actually have any sessions that I am presenting myself this time, uh, which is actually a nice, relaxing time for me.
0: That's a bit of a Uh, reprieve.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, But I will definitely be hanging around, um, particularly the Nova and Magnum design sessions uh, and also the operators track sessions. Uh, There's a couple of sessions on the Monday afternoon on containers and how operators are trying to use them uh, with OpenStack that I'm very interested in. Uh, we at Red Hat also have a, a large number of sessions, uh, so folks can check that out at redhatstack.com uh, on the blog. We have a, a list of all those sessions, uh, and also a sponsor track as well. Nice. Uh, so looking forward to all of that.
0: Yeah, it's going to be very, very cool. Uh, uh, you know, a growing community. I was chatting with uh, Mark Carlier, uh, uh, sort of your DM chatting earlier, and he was mentioning it's just like, really really you know good stuff coming in he referred to it as being epic and and i'm sure that that's going to be the case definitely looking forward to it Uh, for folks that do want to connect with me as well at the openstack summit i'll be delivering the couch to openstack series because there's there's always a freshman class and so it's a good opportunity for folks that want to get started with just dabbling a little bit Uh, we show how to do a, a nice little laptop based lab based on the openstack cookbook uh, which is uh, a great way for, for kicking the tires on OpenStack and seeing what the basic project set is. So that's, I think, Monday afternoon. I, You'd think I'd know the timing, but you can just go to the OpenStack Summit and do a search for couch, and believe me, there's only only one there. So uh, with that, again, Stephen, thank you very much for coming on. Look forward to catching up at the OpenStack Summit, and uh, yeah, we'll continue to, to keep driving the, the stack as, as well as we can.
1: All right. Thanks very much for having me.
0: So for folks that want to continue to hear more good content like this, of course, you can subscribe to the GC On Demand podcast, go to gcondemand.io, and you'll see a list of the show notes and and guest list there. And if you want to contribute or be a part of it, of course, you can reach out to me. Uh, I'm at DiscoPosti on Twitter or drop a line uh, or comment into the Green Circle community at greencircle.bmturbo.com. Thanks, everybody, and have a great day.